Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through the text this morning. Uh, you know, my kid now is like one and a half. You know, he's putting two words together, kind of, you know, big deal stuff. And one of the things we taught him was to say all done, which is nice when he, because he typically will say that, and then there's like a 10-second warning before everything on his tray ends up on the ground, you know? And so it's like all done is like his way of telling us you have 10 seconds to get this away from me before it's everywhere, you know? So all done, sweet, all done, all done. And it's typically kind of nice. I was told that when your kid starts communicating, it would be like better. <laughs> Except for now, whenever he's done with whatever's happening, he's all done, you know? So the other week we were going up to a friend's cabin, which is, you know, not a three-minute drive, uh, but we load him up in the car seat, buckle him up. We're nine minutes down the road, and it's all done, all done, all done, all done, all done. And and I'm sitting there, you know, trying to, like, process my own anxiety, you know, like. <laughs> Who taught this kid to talk, you know? Like. Anyway, we got there. It was good. But it's one of those moments where, like, as, as, a, as a person interacting with a person who doesn't have as much brain power as you, or at least hasn't, like, filled it up yet, you're kind of like, how do I explain to him, uh, no, this drive is going to be worth it, you know? <laughs> Trust me, you know, it's going to be worth it. And he'd be more content just, you know, throwing a ball against the wall at home and hitting himself in the face. You know, like he's fine. He's easily content. I just want this. I want this. And all done, all done. And so this, how do you teach a one and a half year old to wait? Well, first of all, you, you know, so there's that. Uh, but it got, kind of got me thinking about this uh, faith of a child thing. You know, Jesus says, unless you have faith like a child, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom. It was, and we've talked about faith as a child. There's like, you know, curiosity. There's this, you know, real trust of the Father. But we haven't really, uh, I haven't processed through, maybe it's just because now I have a one and a half year old, how the faith of a child includes this absolute impatience. You know, all done, all done waiting, all done waiting, all done waiting. And to try to have a one and a half year old comprehend the mind of their dad who's like, no, this drive is worth it. The weight is worth it. We need a, this is a good thing. This weight is good. It's uncomfortable, but it's good. Uh, we're just, and I feel similarly about God the Father all the time. How is God the Father going to explain to me that this weight is worth it? You're not getting what you want, but there's something, I've, I'm writing a good story, you know, and I, cause I just feel like all the time when I'm not getting what I want, or when I'm getting the opposite of what I want. That I'm in my heart going, all done, all done, all done. Get me out of here. Don't want this anymore. And we see a picture of that here in this text, John 11. So I'm kind of teaching through all of John 11, 1 through 44. We read just a, a section of that. But this is a story of when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Right? God opens tombs. Dead people don't stay dead. Uh, but I want to kind of really slowly zoom in. I titled the sermon, you know, The Emotional Life of Jesus or The Emotional Process of Jesus. Because something about this text, even the way it's written and the way it's in our Bibles, is like inviting us not just to believe that Jesus raises people from the dead or to believe that Jesus will raise people from the dead, but to kind of have to deal with how does God treat us when our expectations don't align with reality? How does he treat Mary? How does he treat Martha? 
when they want this and they get this. And so we're going to kind of see Jesus' emotional process as it unfolds through this text. We're going to kind of go back and then go forward. And I just want us, you know, so I was just going to say this one thing and then I'll dive in. And this is the reason why I'm doing this. Read John eleven thirty five. I don't know if any of you grew up in church, but when you grow up in church, one of the things you learn to do is to memorize verses better than other people so you can feel better than them, right? That's kind of part of the deal. Like, I got, how many verses do you have memorized, you know? And then one of the things, John eleven thirty five was always the main one you had to have memorized because it's two words. You know, I got that one. Boom, locked in. Uh, shortest verse in the whole Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. You know, the verse numbers weren't original to John. John didn't write verse numbers or chapter numbers, but somewhere in our family's history, our church history, they decided that that is significant enough of a sentence that it kind of needs to stand by itself. Jesus wept. And so I want us to together this morning explore that significance and uh, walk through that together. All right? So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Jesus, I know that you're with us this morning, that your spirit is present to us. I ask for people watching online and people here in the room that you'd help us want to be more like you, which includes being like you in terms of our emotional process. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the way this begins is Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he gets word. This is kind of the first section of John 11. Hey, Lazarus, whom you love, is very ill. And Jesus hears them, he listens to them, and then he doesn't do anything. He says, Lord, the one who you love is ill. And he says, this, this won't be that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. There's like this unfazed by newsness to Jesus. He hears bad news, and he still understands that there's a plan. You know, Jesus can, he controls world history. He's sovereign over it all. We've introduced him, we've been introduced to him so far in the book of John, and he is the one who's before Abraham. Who's before Abraham was, I am. I'm eternal. I am God. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. I'm the sustainer, the creator of all things. John 1, the very first thing we see is that in the beginning was God, and the word was God. And in John 1, 14, and that word became flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not thrown off by bad news. He's not flustered by bad news. He's not surprised by bad news. That he's the author and sustainer of all things, and people bring to him bad news, and he doesn't react super intensely. He's kind of at peace. He goes, I know where this is headed. It's going to be okay. And it throws off the disciples. They're like, wait a minute. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, what are we doing here? And Jesus tells this story about, you know, there's 12 hours in a day. I'm not in a hurry. I just kind of picture being with Jesus for those two days that he stays. He hears about this terrible news. Lazarus is dying. He's, he's been healing the sick, you know. And he's just eating lunch, unhurried, unrushed, unfazed, at peace. The hard thing about God being at peace with himself and God being at peace with his plan is that means that he is unfazed by our expectations. Some of you are experiencing this. You have experienced this. If you haven't, you will. God will disappoint you. Big time. You 
that hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. My expectations, my experience of reality, God has this plan he's working, and he is kind of at peace with not meeting our expectations. How do you feel about that? You're sitting there going, all done, all done, all done. He's like, two more hours, man, sorry. Some of you, that all done, all done has been 10 years, 20 years. Some of you, it's been three years and you can't even fathom three more years. He's at peace. He's not flustered by us. He's not surprised by bad news. He even says a couple of things that are really confusing here. Um, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. <laughs> He's disappointing them on purpose. Verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. He's disappointing the disciples on purpose. That sounds easy and fine when you're talking about other people being disappointed. But when it's you, when it's me, when it's my plans, when it's my will. God is God and I'm not. I'm the one and a half year old in the car seat. He's the one driving. I kind of have to know my role in the story. But here's what's crazy about this next piece. is That's how he starts off. At peace, unfazed okay with disappointing people. He's not bound up and bowing to us. But then we see the way that he treats people in the middle of that. And this is another way to be surprised here. So verse 17, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus already been in the tomb four days. Just enough time to kind of start to get nasty. Bethany is near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Verse 20, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She says a true thing to Jesus. She comes out in the midst of her being disappointed by God. And here comes God walking up the path. And she comes out with the finger. If you had been there. Do you feel comfortable talking to Jesus like that? If you had been there? Martha did. I wonder if she has bad theology or something. What do you think? Well, let's find out. She says, but even if now I know, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says, I know you didn't. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know on the last day he'll rise again. She's kind of got her big picture theology pretty worked out. You know, she goes, I know on the last day, everyone will be raised, blah, blah, blah. I know the story. <laughs> Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't, he actually gives her this opportunity to like show us, I think, how good her theology actually is. Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's not just some last day, but it's in me. I'm the one who's going to bring about resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall not live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. 
you know, Martha's a theologian. She understands what's going on. And Jesus kind of draws her out. He says, do you believe this? She goes, yeah, I believe you're God. I believe you're the Son of God. Whatever you happen is going to happen. But if you were there, see, I think a lot of Marthas are in our church, Redemption Gateway. A lot of people who kind of know, maybe you're pretty familiar with the Bible, maybe you're not super familiar with the Bible, but there's this like, I trust God with the 10,000 foot stuff. But this kind of like, what happened four days ago thing, what happened last week, what happened, that thing that happened 10 years ago, that thing that happened 25 years ago. If God had been there, And Jesus draws her out, I think partly to show us that you can have really good theology and still be dis- disoriented by di- being disappointed by God. So God's interaction with Martha, sends Martha away. Martha goes back, gets Mary. Mary comes out. Mary's different than Martha. Martha's the thinker. Mary's more the feeler. Notice how Jesus in his interaction with Martha doesn't really seem emotional. He's not all whipped up. He kind of meets Martha where she is. But in verse 28, we see uh, Mary, Martha goes and tells Mary, hey, the teacher's calling you, 29. Um, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but still in the place. So Jesus is still a long way off. Mary rises out quickly and goes out to get him. A bunch of the Jews who are with Mary, trying to comfort her, come along with her, thinking she's going to go to the tomb. And they don't want anybody to like, kind of be alone in their grief. And so they're going to go with her to the tomb. Um, now Mary, verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell. She fell at his feet, undignified, lets it out. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been there. I imagine like the difference, Martha's like theology. If you had been there, this wouldn't have happened. You're sovereign over all things. What's the deal here? Mar- Mary just, Lord, if you had been there. There's this exasperation there's tears, there's disorientation, there's deep emotional wounding here. If you had been there, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is weird, right? There's just kind of phrase that goes around, you know, facts don't care about feelings or whatever. Maybe. But Jesus seems to. See, he's not moved to tears by the facts of the situation. He's not moved to tears by what happened. He's moved to tears by Mary's tears. If you went and took some philosophy class, you'd learn about how there had to be a first mover, the one who writes the story, who's sovereign over all things, the one who's not surprised, the one who's the author, the one who controls history. But here you have Jesus, the mover, the first mover, being moved. All these verbs here are passive verbs. He was deeply moved. It happened to him. It came upon him. He was greatly troubled. That could be translated as shaken. He was shaken up. So we talk about Jesus having a body, right? But emotions are these embodied realities. This is one of the reasons why some of the main heresies in the first couple of centuries of the church were that Jesus could not have had a body. They didn't really argue about whether he was God. They argued about whether he was really human. Because you, 
you have passive bodily experiences all the time. One of the main reasons we don't like to cry is because it's like this feeling of loss of control. Like you give yourself over to it. Nobody can just command themselves to cry. Even like actors who are good at like making themselves cry, really what they're doing is they're just kind of getting into a different story and making themselves feel like they're in that story and so that in this world they can feel like they're crying. The movers moved, not by facts, but by us, by you, by me, by Mary, by the Jews, by the people. He's emotionally present. What would you expect Jesus to say? Mary comes out crying. Ah, 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 ah. I'm going to raise Lazarus. Stop it. What a waste of time. Jesus is about to raise this guy from the dead, and Jesus spends time crying. It's inefficient. He's making her wait even longer by crying with her. If he hadn't wasted time crying, Lazarus could have been resurrected sooner. What is God doing? Why is this happening? Why is this playing out like this? Verse 34, he's greatly moved. He's deeply troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? Jesus, unlike us, when he sees people's deep emotional process wounding, he does not lean out. He leans in and says, take me closer. We are prone to leaning out, to trying to make it stop. Here are reasons why you shouldn't be crying. That's kind of a lot. I noticed you've been crying. Maybe you should go talk to somebody else about this. Like, we, like a therapist. Because they're, they're, you're making me uncomfortable. The therapist at least is kind of signed up to be uncomfortable. We professionalize it. We say, go away from me. You're a lot. We push, stop. Why do we do that? Well, it's because it's painful. I remember when I was, like if I asked all of you, give me a list of reasons why you know you're a sinner. Most people kind of do like the sex, money, power thing. You know, here's my sexual deviancy, disordered desires. Here's my greed, my kind of curmudgeon-y, you know, I check my bank accounts too often, you know, here's, here are the ways that I kind of use my power for me, selfishness, you know. But honestly, probably the most, like, come to grips with my own limits sense of conviction has come from this verse. There's a command, multiple places in Scripture, weep with those who weep. Do you obey that command every time? Sinners. I remember sitting with the counselor one time talking about how I had a hard time crying. People were crying. You know, it's just my personality. That's what I said. And then she asked me, so how do you feel about people when they are crying? And it was one of those questions that you kind of just get punched in the chest with. Because a list came to mind. You know, well, they're obviously pathetic. <laughs> uh, they don't have self-control. They lack perspective. We are all having a hard time and they don't have the ability just to shove it and get along with life like we all do. They look clingy. They look needy. They're basically uh, 
you know, haven't matured past, at a, like, not even into adolescence. They're still in that kind of tantrum toddler phase. And I realized that one of the main reasons that I would choke off tears was because I didn't want to look like the people that I was judging. Well, if that's how I feel about when people cry, of course I'm not going to let myself cry. I'm not going to look pathetic. But at the same time, talking to this counselor is when I was going through my New Testament exegesis in Greek class, and I had just read John 11, and I realized that I was judging Jesus. Pathetic, weak, clingy. And I thought, I am out of whack on my theology of emotions. I say I want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Maybe you're like, eh, I want to be a little like Jesus. Not like all the way like Jesus. Do you weep with those who weep? Or do you try to make it stop? Make it go away? Mary, once you've stopped crying, you can come back and we can talk about this. He was deeply moved, greatly shaken. John 30, 11, 35, Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how he loved him. Is Jesus doubting the resurrection? No. Is Jesus doubting his own sovereignty? No. Does Jesus know what's happening next? Yes. Is Jesus still affected and, in, and engaged in the process with Mary? Yes. Does he treat Mary different than Martha? Yes. Does he cry all the time without good reason? No. But he's affected by us. He's affected by you. He's affected by me. A lot of times our biggest dysfunctions as people are somehow related to Jesus saying, take me to the tomb. And us saying, no. Arm's length. I'm not wet ready to talk about that pain, that loss, that difficulty with you yet, God. This is one of, one of the reasons we're so addicted to so many different things as a society is we can't deal with our negative emotions. We can't feel our feelings. We have to avoid them, escape them, whether it's quick memes on the phone or it's sneaking drinks or it's pornography or it's workaholism, whatever it is. I don't like feeling that. Feel something else. Got to get there. Verse 38, Jesus' emotions don't just stop there, but they actually go somewhere. Verse 8, when, then Jesus deeply moved again. This one could be translated angered or incensed or now stirred up unto action. He's going from not just being grieved about the brokenness, but he's being angry about it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. People are not supposed to die. That's not the Genesis 1 and 2 vision. People are supposed to live. I'm the author of life. They're destroying that which I've written. He's mad about it. How dare you take a life of one I love? He sees the sin. He sees the brokenness. And he's mad. He's not just sad. He's also mad that Jesus is emotionally complicated. He's deeply grieved and saddened and moved to tears. And he's frustrated and angry and moved to action. 
It's not only tears, but it's also action. Action where he has a right place to do something. So he says, take away the stone. They said, Lord, he probably stinks. He's been dead a long time. And he says, I told you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. Move the stone. Verse 43. Verse 42, he prays to the Father. Says, thank you for being with me. Thank you for empowering me that they may believe that you've sent me. Verse 43, he said those things and he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. For Jesus, it never ends with tears. He always has a last word. But he's very often not in a hurry like we are to get there. Every tomb opens. Rarely do tombs open when we want them to. There's other dead people in this graveyard. Maybe other funerals happening. Can you imagine being at the funeral of your loved one? And God shows up and resurrects Lazarus. And you're like, what are you doing later? (laughs) Do you have like three more seconds to do that again right here? So this is hard. We hear about miracles. We hear about God doing powerful things. You know, God saved my marriage. God cured my cancer. God changed my, you know. But a lot of people, they're still waiting. All done. Don't want to do this anymore. And this is the tension we get to inhabit as Christians. Sometimes there's a lot of tears. Sometimes there's a lot of anger. A lot of the times what we see in this story with Lazarus is that these people wanted a healing and God disappointed them. But he gave them something better than a healing, which is a resurrection. He's going, I'm okay with not meeting your expectations because your expectations are too low. You want a healing? I'm giving you a resurrection. But the hard part for us in this text is that they get a resolution in four days. Some of you have had terrible things happen and you get resolution in four days. But that's the minority experience. Most of the time, we're like stuck with Martha going, yeah, on the last day, it'll all play out. But you gotta say, here in this, the way that Jesus opens tombs, the way he gets the last word, the way he's present in the process, the way he doesn't rebuke the emotions of Mary, the way he enters into them and weeps with them and is connected to them. I think one of the things I hear people apologize for more than anything else at this church myself included, my family included, is for crying. Hearing conversation, talking about fill in the blank, and it's sorry. We just feel like our emotions are such a burden to other people. Sorry for, God forbid, being like Jesus. Sorry for being connected to the pain of the world. You know, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be emotionally connected to the highs and the lows of this world. We think that we're clear thinkers and rational and sober when we rise above and callous up and shove things down. And I, I've been to some funerals where they're like luau themed, you know, celebration of life. It never plays out well for the family. 
real unprocessed grief, unprocessed loss. Jesus is angry about death. He's not like, well, let's celebrate Lazarus' life. At least we got him 30 years. Real sadness, real anger, real action. And I just, what if, what if we were a gateway? What if we were a place where people didn't have to apologize for crying? What if we were just a place where we refused, refused to apologize for crying? Mary doesn't apologize. Jesus doesn't apologize. You know, if you find yourself crying because there's like literally nothing going on, you know, they're professionals for that. <laughs> you know. But if we're crying because things are sad, remember sitting with a guy, you know, depressed. Why? Because his situation was depressing. Because Lazarus is dead. And he's not risen yet. And it's, Lord, if you had been there. All of us probably have multiple places in our life where we could say, Lord, if you had been there. If you don't yet, you will. And I just hope we as a church can be a place, we can be a people where we can live in this tension. That Jesus always has a last word over death. Jesus always has a last word over suffering. Jesus always has a last word over sin. There will be a Lazarus come out moment that reigns, that rings for the whole world on the last day. But until then, we're kind of the kid in the car seat going, all done. All done. And we can trust the God who's driving. And that doesn't mean that he's not affected by us emotionally, even while he's disappointing us sometimes on purpose. We do not know the stories that God writes. We will one day. And until then, we get to live in this messy reality. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for John chapter 11. Thank you for being God in the flesh who is physically, emotionally affected by our weeping and by our trouble. I pray for people who have yet to take you closer to their trauma, to their pain, to their loss. I pray that you will uh, invite yourself there, help them see that you see what they see. And God, help us be a place that knows that we have a Savior who can weep with us and not only save us. Amen.